0: Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, I am thrilled to have Professor Douglas Weber as my guest. Doug is an associate professor of economics at Temple University, where he studies the economics of higher education, including student loan debt and the economic returns associated with different college majors. He's also really fun to follow on Twitter because he often shares pictures of his fur babies. Come for the economics, stay for the dog pictures. Today we are going to discuss something that's often missing from the conversation about affording college, that's risk. Doug has done a deep dive on this issue with his research and I'm glad to be able to pick his brain today about how aspiring students should think about risk and incorporate the notion into their decision-making about college. Doug. I'm so pleased to have you with us today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I've been looking forward to this for a while.
0: Oh, I have too. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with us. So I'm going to start off with a question that I have been asked about a million times, and I'll bet you've been asked it too. Is college worth it?
1: So that's a really complicated question. Um, <laughs> on average, yes. That if if I'm forced to give just one answer, yes or no, I'll say yes. It pays off for the average person. It's an investment worth making. But the real answer is a lot more complicated than that. Just like any financial investment, there is some risk involved just because it's very likely to pay off does not mean that it's a sure thing.
0: I think that's a, a great summary. And I always like to say that too. It's, it's complicated. But you know something that I found was that as an economist, I'm often citing the figures that say, yes, on average, college is a good investment. In the real world in the policy world and in the world of talking to parents and students that's not hugely satisfying (laughs) And, and so i pushed myself you know in the past several years to start thinking about a different frame for this issue and i came upon this notion of risk and when i did i realized that you had been doing a lot of work using that same frame and so i was really excited to see that you and i are both economists so when we talk about risk we mean something very specific. And I was hoping that you can just talk about generally what that means. What do we mean when we say that college is risky?
1: Sure. One, I'm absolutely talking about financial risk here, that there's many reasons to go to college and things that people get out of college. I'm specifically going to be talking about financial risk. And here I could mean the likelihood that you're not going to get the financial return from college that you're expecting. And that can mean something very different to different people. It could be that you're actually going to have less money at the end of the day because you went to college than if you had not. Mm -hmm. That's a really extreme form of negative risk here. It could also be, though, just that you don't get the payoff that you were thinking. Let's say over a lifetime, you make $50,000 $50,000 more because you went to college relative to if you hadn't gone. Well, okay, you technically had a positive return there, but that probably for most parents or or students who are thinking about going to college, they're probably expecting something on the order of much greater than $50,000. And so I think most people would probably say, it, well, it really didn't pay off in, uh, in that respect.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you have done, you know, very deep research on this and we could talk for hours even days about the findings that you have really trying to describe statistically the risk that people are facing financially when they invest in college. But, you know, if we're talking to somebody here who's thinking about going to college or they're thinking about sending their child to college, how can we describe the level of risk that people are facing? Are there some good summary statistics that come from your work that can help us understand how big of a risk this is? Is it like going and buying a lottery ticket? Is it like, you know, investing in a mutual fund? (laughs) Where does it where does it line up or how should we think about it?
1: So that's a really great question. And I think it's more on the order of investing in a mutual fund. If you invest in the stock market on average the stock market goes up over time so on average investing in the broader market you're going to win not always and so it's the same with college on average the investment is going to pay off but it's not a sure thing i'll break down two different types of risk here one is just the likelihood that you go to school and you graduate and things don't pay off i'll say if you wind up graduating from the typical institution, you're going to get a positive and, you know, real financial return. But one out of 10 or 15 out of 100 times, if it doesn't pay off, that's not trivial risk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other aspect of risk that I'll mention is, well, a lot of people go to school and they don't graduate. And that's the most significant downside risk of attending college. Because if you pay money for tuition, you also are implicitly not doing other stuff when you're going to college. Economists call this the opportunity cost, that you could have been working full-time or investing in your skills in some other way. And then if you take out student loans, it's very difficult to have them discharged in something like bankruptcy. If you take out student loans, you kind of have to think, that you're not going to be able to have them discharged if things don't work out for you. If you don't get the college diploma, those are the people who are in really the worst-case scenario.
0: So regarding the problem of people not graduating to get their return on their investment in college, that happens, I think, a lot more often than our listeners might realize. So do you have any stats on that?
1: It's surprisingly hard to get one hard number on how likely it is that you're not going to graduate just given the way that government statistics work because we typically don't track students all that well from school to school so if someone transfers away mm-hmm. from one school then they might be counted as not graduating from that school
2: mm-hmm.
0: even
1: if they later on go on to graduate somewhere else
0: so it's hard to measure but it's but big? it's
1: big the 6 year graduation rate
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's around 60%. Okay. This is at, you know, the typical four-year institution. So there are plenty of schools which have higher graduation rates than that, but there are also plenty of schools that have much lower graduation rates than that. And that's, that's significant risk.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, one in three not completing their degree. And if you don't complete your degree, but you've paid for your degree, it's really unlikely that you're going to get any sort of financial return that puts you in a better position for having gone to college than if you hadn't.
1: Exactly. There's almost no return to having some college. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in general, these are the students who are in the worst possible place. They have student loan debt that's not dischargeable. They don't have better earnings prospects that come from the college diploma. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately today, even before the pandemic, the earnings prospects on average for someone with only a high school diploma are just not that great. Yeah. And, and generally not able to support the paying off of student loans.
0: So that's a big chunk of it then. The fact that one in three people are starting college, paying the bill, but not finishing. Right. That's a huge downside risk. Yes. Just like investing in the stock market, the choices that you make about your investment have a big impact on whether or not you see a return or how risky your investment is, right? So if I'm investing in mutual funds, I have one set of risk. Or if I'm investing in startup companies or or something like that, I have a different risk. What are the choices that our students are making that are really impactful on the level of risk that's involved with their educational investment?
1: So there's two big choices. There's where you're going to school and what you're going to major in. One of the things that makes quantifying risk here so hard is that it's not random where you go to school or what you major in and as much as possible you want to be making apples to apples comparisons that someone who's going to Harvard well they have probably many other advantages that you know are going to help them along the way uh, as opposed to someone who's going to I'll just say not Harvard but the state of the research does say that the college that you go to does matter. And in part it matters because, well, resources matter. Mm-hmm. Whether it's actually improving the job network through through things like internships or higher quality professors, the the quality of the school that you go to because of those different resources does matter.
0: And how do I know the risk that I'm taking on by going to a specific school? And and I know the data on this question for the public has evolved very recently, but you know if you were recommending to somebody how to assess the risk of a choice that they were making, where would you go?
1: So the college scorecard is the best information out there right Mm -hmm. now in terms of consumer-facing data that can tell you how are students who enrolled at this school, how are they actually doing in terms of graduating, in terms of repaying their loans, in terms of their early career earnings. If you just Google college scorecard and then the name of whatever school you're looking at, Chances are it's going to be the first search result. And I do think that this is a really underutilized resource for parents and prospective students.
0: I agree. You know, I I think it's people like us, Doug, who are reading that website for the data all the time. And I wish it was students and their families using it more. But I interrupted you a bit there because you were going to say there is a second decision that students are making that's really consequential.
1: The other decision is what to major in. This is a surprisingly to some people consequential decision. Mm -hmm. So, I've done a lot of work on the lifetime returns to different majors. And I find that people are generally pretty good at kind of rank ordering different majors Mm -hmm. that everyone knows roughly. Okay, it's, you know, engineering and finance and econ tend to be the higher earning majors, and some of the humanities tend to be the lower earning majors there are some surprises that there are for instance some business majors which are actually very low earning which goes against mm-hmm. people's uh, intuition that management and marketing tend to be a lot lower on the list mm-hmm. but mostly people are pretty informed about the the ranking of different majors sure but they tend to be shocked when i tell them about the magnitude of the difference that mm. from the you know top to the bottom earning major You're talking about more than a $1 million lifetime decision. As much as maybe even $2 million from the, the very, very top to the very bottom. And that means that you know because there's so much persistence when you choose a major, and by that I mean when you choose a major, you take certain prereqs and then you take classes. And then it can be hard to change majors once you've gotten too far into it because mm-hmm. you feel like you have to start over and take a whole bunch of new classes. Right. So this presents... A big challenge for parents who are trying to guide their students and for, mm-hmm. for students who, if you're 18 years old, you probably don't realize that you might be making a $2 million decision.
0: Right. So just to be clear, Doug, you're saying somebody who's in one of the higher earning majors compared to somebody who's in a lower earning major over the course of their lifetime, the difference in how much they earn could be as much as $2 million. That's correct. It's huge. Yeah, those those decisions early on make a big impact because of like what you're saying, which is that you can start on one path and it's really difficult to to switch gears. And this is coming from somebody who started college as a a sort of dance, musical theater type major. Really? So I really I <laughs> a little known fact about me. I ultimately became a math major though. So um uh, but yeah, that's that's so interesting. One thing I noticed about this conversation is that we often kind of make jokes about those low earning majors and we cite things like feminist basket weaving, which was one that somebody suggested at a talk I gave one time and they said, oh, I just need to get rid of all those stupid majors. And I've I don't never want to heard say of that.
1: Just... I've heard of underwater yeah, basket weaving. Um... <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. But I think we kind of trivialize and imagine. Oh, well, my child or I would never do one of those silly majors, and so the idea that college wouldn't pay off because of the major I pick is kind of outside of my thinking. But what are some of those lower return majors? because I don't actually know of any underwater basket weaving programs, so I'm pretty sure they must be ones that are a bit more mainstream that are having those lower returns.
2: It
1: is the the majors that you would typically think the humanities, the music dance, uh, so good thing you switched uh, uh, switched to math. (laughs) (laughs) Those majors tend to be much lower earning. I'll call out a couple of them that are more complicated. So something like psychology. Psychology is, if not the most common major nationwide. And as a result, it's almost gotten to the point where, like, just having a bachelor's degree in psychology is actually very low earning. Mm-hmm. And there's a very high likelihood that you're not going to be able to get a job actually using your degree. Mm. This is basic supply and demand. You know, this is the mm-hmm. economist goes to college. Well, this is. Um, <laughs> uh, I,
0: I, Go ahead. Give us the economics, Doug. There
1: are tons of psych majors out there, too many to fill jobs. And so. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are exceptions. I'm talking in averages here. Yep. But for the most part now, it's almost become a de facto requirement that you have to go to graduate school if you have a degree in psych in order to actually find a job and make a, a good living using that degree. Mm-hmm. That complicates the risk here even more because – Grad school is more time outside of the labor market. It is more money. There's a lot fewer grants and scholarships and things available for graduate school. And it's just a lot longer that you have to delay starting your job. That can be hard to quantify, but that's mm-hmm. probably something that's very significant to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The other one that I'll mention, and I, and I I mentioned this because there's this perception of grouping majors together and saying, oh, well, if it's a STEM major, it must be high earning. Mm-hmm. And biology is one that actually with only a bachelor's degree, bio is not a very high earning major. Um, Mm -hmm. I think from a lifetime earnings perspective, biology and art history are basically equivalent.
0: That's a shocker. Yes. That one really is.
1: But when you start looking at including people who get graduate degrees, then bio shoots up to one of the top 10. And it's because Mm -hmm. there are many people who go to medical school with a degree in bio. Yeah. So that's, again, an example of the nuance here that if you are definitely planning on going to medical school. And again, there's a lot of people who plan on going to med school, but don't actually make it there. Mm-hmm. If you know for sure you're going to make it to med school and you're going to make it through, then, well, major in whatever you want. You're going to be a doctor and you know right. the bio degree is fine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if that's what you major in and you get a degree and you don't wind up going to med school, then the, the earnings prospects are not so great
0: yeah so I'm gonna guess that you agree with me on the idea that there's no specific recommendation that everybody take the the least risky path, right? This is an individual decision that people make and how do you assess as an individual? what level of risk you want to take on when you're thinking about going to college.
1: So I agree with you wholeheartedly. And some of the classes I teach include a lot of freshmen, and I talk to them about this very decision. And I show them a lot of statistics the first week of class about the difference in lifetime earnings across majors. And then I say, but this should not be first thing that you take into account when you're making the decision of what to major in. Mm -hmm. It probably shouldn't be the first or second or third or fourth thing that you take into account. A big reason for that is, um, I'll use another economist term here, is comparative advantage. Mm -hmm. It's not random what a lot of people choose to major in because in general, people will make choices based on their own skills and their own likes. And it's not always the right thing to compare someone if if you say, uh, let's, let's take an accountant and an English major. An accountant is, on average, going to earn quite a bit more than an English major over the course of their life. But if you are the parent of an 18-year-old and you're thinking about, well, what should I advise my child to go into? Well, probably it's not the case that if you think they would be right in the middle of the distribution of English majors, so if, they, if they'd they be the average English major, it's probably not the case that they would also be the average accountant. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of differences in those skills. Let's say we take someone who is not only a skilled writer and is very good at the type of things that would make you a good English major. Let's also say that you really enjoy it. If you think about picking them up and taking them to the parallel universe and putting them in an accounting job, they probably would not be equally skilled at that accounting Mm job. Yeah. Even if they went through and got the degree, they probably wouldn't like it as much let's say you would be a reasonably above average English major. Let's say you'd be at the 75th percentile. And let's say if we take that person and they would be, you know, a relatively below average, not bottom of the barrel, but below average accounting major, let's say at the 30th or 35th percentile. Well, if that's the decision that we're looking at, it's actually financially beneficial to be the English major. Mm-hmm. And when you take into account all of the other non-financial components of just job satisfaction and all that, mm-hmm. that adds even more. Yeah. so that makes this this whole question even more complicated.
0: Yeah, I, that makes sense. No, and unfortunately, that's a question that is tough to use any sort of data to help answer. That's kind that's of right. one that people need to look within themselves to yeah. you know to think about their skills and assess. So let's say you've done that and, you know, I've decided I'm just a fantastic dancer and it's my passion and so that's where I want to invest that I'll be a top dancer, which is absolutely false. But then I want to go and use some data to inform the other part of the decision on major, which is... What's the risk that I'm really facing within a particular major? Choosing between different majors, where do I go for that, or where do you tell someone to go for that?
1: So this is going to sound somewhat self-serving, but uh, if you <laughs> if you go onto my website, which is uh, doug webercom and just and uh, I don't get paid for any of this. This is just you know, I just put this out there. So, but you should get um, paid. <laughs> and, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm a professor. I'm not good at monetizing myself. (laughs) Um, And you click on the data tab. I've compiled lifetime earnings for like the 25th percentile, 50th percentile, 75th percentile. So think like average, reasonable best case, reasonable worst case type scenarios.
0: And that's published by across all different majors that people could choose. Yep.
1: There's roughly 80 or so, uh, 80 or 90 different majors there. And what I tell students is think about what you're good at, what you like, and maybe narrow down the list of things that you're thinking about majoring in. Narrow it down to 10 or or 15 majors before you ever think too, too much about the lifetime earnings. And then once you've narrowed it down, then look at the earnings, Mm -hmm. because you might find that some majors that you are, I mean, you're like, well, I'd like either of those just as well, Mm -hmm. but one of them, you're going to typically make a million dollars more over the course of a lifetime. And it's like, okay, well now that's, that's Useful information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to validate that what's not just a self serving plug, because the resource that you have up, I have seen and is is incredibly valuable, like both to people like me and researchers, but also it's totally a user friendly document that people with no background in economics can take a look and see what you've done and it's super helpful. So I'm glad that you pitched that out as a recommended source. Yeah, well, so. Thank you, Beth. Doug, something that comes to mind, I think, when people are shopping for college and, and picking where they're going to see the biggest financial return is the price tag. There's often a belief that these really high-priced elite institutions offer the biggest return. Do you find that to be true in your research?
1: A really, really rich, you know high-resource school does tend to lead to better outcomes for students. But usually people are not thinking about making the choice between, say, an Ivy League institution and I'm just going to make up a school here so as to not offend anyone you know (laughs) north southeast indiana states uh university Right. That's not usually the choice that people are thinking about making. Mm-hmm. Most people go to college relatively close to their home, and you might be thinking, "Well, there's a private school that costs forty thousand dollars near me, and then there's also a public school that costs ten thousand dollars relatively near me, and I'm weighing that decision." Generally speaking, once you have kind of, I'll say, controlled for the selectivity of the institution, mm-hmm. the return is roughly the same. Mm. Private schools will try to imply that their really high price tag is indicative of much higher quality. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it isn't. And there's one really specific marketing tactic that they'll use. People like Beth and I will call it tuition discounting. Mm -hmm. But to parents and students, this is going to be financial aid. This is giving scholarships or grants. Many times private schools will like to say, look, we normally charge $40,000, even though normally they actually don't. But they, they'll say that's what their <laughs> price tag is. That's what their so-called mm-hmm. sticker price is. It's 40000 mm-hmm. But we like you so much. We so want you to come that we're going to give you a $20,000 scholarship. It's kind of natural, especially for the 18-year-old who isn't experienced in, in this sort of thing, to think, wow, it's like they're giving me $20,000 a year. They must um, really like
0: me, right? <laughs> they must really
1: like me. And it's like they're giving me free money. And that's not the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. It will very, very, very likely be the best financial decision for you to go to the 10000 a year public school than the discounted 20000 a year private school. Mm-hmm. The last key piece of advice I want to mention on that, that type of financial aid is that there are often a lot of strings attached a lot of fine print. If you're thinking about attending that higher priced school and the only way that you're able to afford that is through this generous scholarship package, make sure you know what the restrictions are because there will be things like if you happen to fall below a 3.25 GPA, there goes your scholarship. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people do that, especially in your first semester. It can be really, really easy. You mess up a couple times, and um, or not even mess up, just, just get a little bit of bad luck, right. and suddenly you've lost the scholarship.
0: And some of those scholarships just don't roll over to the second, third, and fourth year anyway, right?
1: Exactly. And a lot of times, if you change majors once a year or two into your schooling, there may be no way to actually graduate in four years, but often those scholarships are capped at four years. Mm-hmm. So then you could be looking at a really, really gut-wrenching decision of, for your fifth or sixth year, having to pay that full price 40000 a year that there's no way you can reasonably afford, or walk away from the school with nothing. Yeah. And that's something that you really have to be aware of going in.
0: And so unfortunately, there's no great takeaway here, which is here's what you should look at. Here's what you shouldn't look at. Rather, it's just this is really complicated. In a way, they're trying to sell you something, right? And they're they're trying to persuade your thinking with something that they're calling merit scholarships. And and you have to be just a really incredibly savvy consumer in comparing what it is that you're likely to pay for college, to what it is that you're likely to get as a benefit to decide if it's really worth it for you, assuming that finances are an important factor, which we know for 90% of students is the case. What about student loans, Doug? I mean, that's the center of the conversation today, especially in Washington, D.C., with all the discussion of student loan forgiveness. Has the availability of student debt or the increase of take-up of student debt, has that made college more risky for people?
1: Well, certainly students should not be afraid to take out some student loans. What I like to say is I would infinitely prefer to be a 22 or 23-year-old with $30,000 in debt, uh, which is roughly the average student debt for people who graduate. I'd infinitely prefer to be that 22 or 23-year-old with 30 grand in debt than to be an 18-year-old who decides not to attend college the median college grad over the course of their lifetime is going to make about $900,000 more than the median high school grad over the course of their lifetime. So that debt is absolutely an investment that is, on average, worth making. But you really want to be mindful of the consequences of that debt. If you are in, say, a lower return major, well, then having substantial student loan debt, or you're in a major that de facto requires you to go to graduate school, well, then you're going to maybe be taking out a lot more student loan debt. And then that absolutely does, to your point, increase the riskiness of the college investment decision. If you're talking about you're going to be an engineer and you are very certain that you're going to graduate with that engineering degree, the risk is very, very low. But if you're In one of those lower-earning majors at a school that isn't all that well-resourced and has a lower graduation rate, well, the financial calculus can be different and a lot more complicated.
0: That's a great point, that the certainty of your pathway from where you are today to the career that you anticipate being, it's a very certain path. Debt is not such a scary thing, right? Because you can do that economist thing where we say over the course of your lifetime, it's going to pay dividends, which outweigh the cost of the debt, even in taking into account interest, right? But somebody who's borrowing without a clear path forward, there's a lot more uncertainty about where they're going to land. So that's an interesting point I don't hear made very often. So thanks for raising that. Of course. Doug, I think that does it for our conversation today. This has been super helpful. I've read all of your research, and it was still interesting to me to hear you talk about it. So thank you for being here. I think the listeners will really enjoy and learn a lot from, from the discussion today, too. So thank you again for the time.
1: Well, I, I so appreciate being asked, and I cannot wait to read your book. And I also have to say that so much of my initial perspective and the, the reason for me pursuing a lot of the work that I did was based on reading your first book, Game of Loans. So you've uh, uh, you've been having an influence on me and my work for quite a while now.
0: Well, that is very flattering. Thank you, Doug. And I promise I didn't pay him to say that. But, folks. Nope. But <laughs> thank you so much, Doug. Take care. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You could send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at DrBethAkers. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.